Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Body of the People. On this episode, we have Evan Osnos, a reporter at The New Yorker, talking to us about North Korea. We have Phil Weiser, who's a candidate for attorney general in Colorado. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Sam, and Clint. Before we jump into this episode, I'll just remind you that you did not get here alone, that your successes are because there were people who cared about you, who believed in you, who poured into you, who helped you be the best person that you could be. And that that is true for all of us, that our best is a compilation of the love and the support that we've gotten. So remember that you have a responsibility to pour that back into the world, that you didn't get here alone and and nobody got where they are by themselves. So you have an obligation to be a part of somebody else's support system in this world, and you should take that seriously. Let's jump right in. And this is the news with me, Brittany Pecknett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, Samuel Sinyangwe, a resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, a resident academic. Hey, everyone. It's the news. This is Brittany Pecknett, at Ms. Pecketti on all social media. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith, at Clint Smith III. And this is Sam Sinyangwe, at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is DeRay, at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y, on Twitter. So I know that there's a lot of calamity going on in the world, um, but on the lightest note I can possibly start this on, it's a great day in American history because Cardi B's Bodak Yellow is number one on the Billboard charts. If you haven't heard it, pew, it pew, means pew, you've been pew, living pew. under a rock. Right. Pew, pew. <laughs> we need the DJ, the DJ sounds again. If you haven't heard it, you've been living under a rock. Um, if uh, If you haven't heard it, you need to go... Pause the podcast, listen to it right now, and then come back to us and celebrate this important day in American history. I don't dance now. I make money moves. <laughs> Words that you should put on my grave. Put it on my gravestone. I don't got to dance. I make money moves. I'm actually surprised. You know, some people <laughs> haven't heard Bodak Yellow, and I'm just like, where have you been? Like the whole, I mean, this was Summer 17 hit. Like, it was the hit of 17. And did you hear that it's Cardi B and Lauryn Hill shared the record for having a number one rap song by a woman with no features? Cardi is out here living her best life. So this week, there's obviously been a lot of stuff going on in the world, in the news, in our country. Um, One of those things is uh, the president of the United States remarks on a rally, uh, at a rally last week in Alabama, where he uh, referred to what, you know, since we're trying to keep this podcast clean uh, for all the family folks out there, uh, he referred to the players who have knelt and who have not stood for the national anthem uh, in the National Football League uh, with some rather uh, unflattering language, um, some sons of Uh, You can fill in the rest and uh, talked about how the owners should uh, fire and kick out and remove the players who participate in uh, in protest against uh, the national anthem, which it's important to note are not protests against the flag, are not protests against the military, are not protests against the first responder, uh, but that Colin Kaepernick, who began this last year uh, and who is has created a sort of groundswell of uh, support amongst his peers, especially after Trump's remarks, uh, was very clear that this protest, when he began sitting and then began kneeling, uh, is protesting the treatment of Black people uh, at the hands of the state. 
and extrajudicial forces in this country. Uh, and I think that that has gotten lost a bit in the conversation around the flag. And I think people are thinking about, you know, talking about freedom of speech and people are talking about the military. But um, Colin was always very, very clear that this was not about disrespecting the military, that this was singularly about protesting uh, a country that continues to enact violence against black and brown people um, in a myriad of different ways. So there have been 883 people killed by police so far this year in 2017. And of those 883 cases, uh, only six of those cases have led to an officer being charged with any crime. Uh, So that's less than 1% of the total number of cases have led to an officer being charged. And what we know to be true as well is that only about half of the cases where an officer is charged, the officer is ultimately convicted. And when officers are convicted, they are rarely sentenced to uh, jail time. They actually get a, a less of a sentence uh, for the same crime being convicted of as a civilian. Um, so only about half of those cases, they actually end up serving jail time. So you know, that's the system in play. We know that black folks are three times more likely to be killed by police and more likely to be unarmed when killed by police. And so, you know, it's the facts are pretty clear that this system refuses to hold police accountable for police violence, particularly against black folks. Uh, and that is sort of the root of this protest. That trend has continued this year as it was the year before. Uh, and so, you know, there's no no statistical reason for that protest to let up. You know, it's been fascinating, I think, to watch uh, what unfolded over the weekend and the Sunday football games, just how many people kneeled um, and then to kind of watch some of the reasoning come out uh, and to see how many people actually weren't kneeling because of all of the the information that you just gave, um, Sam, or because of the original reason that Colin Kaepernick and, and others over the last year have been kneeling um, to protest broadly racism and systemic oppression in this country. Um, but how many people did it out of brotherhood, right? That one of their fellow players was attacked. Uh, and so I think there's a, there's a conversation that's been happening around um, the fact that while that is frustrating, um, does that represent an open door, right? That, that maybe it took this for some people to, to get on board. Um, of course it is frustrating for, to see just how much it can take for people to get on board. Um, I think the other conversation that's been swirling around this that I found interesting, Bob Costas was on air, um, fellow St. Louis and Bob Costas was on air, uh, earlier this week, basically talking about how much the American public conflates the military and the flag and sports all together in one fell swoop. So we talked about the fact that other kind of collective events that we go to, if we go to see a player, when you turn on this podcast, you don't wait for the national anthem to be sung, right? It happens specifically at sporting events. Um, and then you um, see the iconography of the American flag displayed at a lot of sporting events. Um, uh, and you see it displayed during times when the military is either present or being honored, like when God Bless America is being played at things like the Yankee games. Uh, And so when you conflate all three of these things, people are misunderstanding the protest itself. So they think that it's about disrespect to the flag or disrespect to the military instead of, as has already been said, um, understanding that that flag and the military in theory uh, protect our freedom of speech and protect uh, those of us who live in a country where uh, we can protest uh, and, and in theory not see punishment. You know, I've talked to Colin uh, many times, and and every time I talk to him, I'm reminded of a few things. One is that he 
is ready to play football. He wants to play football. He trains five days a week. He's ready to be hired at any time. The second is that he also believes and knows that the systemic oppression in this country needs to be addressed, can be fixed, and will only be fixed if we talk about it. And the third is that he can he can believe and do all those things at the same time. He can be an incredible football player and someone who knows that the country has a lot of work to do and he can call it out. And then none of that has to be mutually exclusive. What has been unfortunate about the recent coverage of his initial protest and the protests that have happened uh, in the NFL in the, in the past sort of 72 hours-ish is that the focus has been put on Trump. And we know that Trump wants to become the center of attention. And the reality is that Colin didn't take a knee because of Trump. He took a knee because of systemic oppression writ large, because of police violence, because of mass incarceration. And we can't let Trump distract us from focusing on the issues at hand. Colin took a knee because of the issues. And we need to make sure that we continue to talk about these issues and how to fix them. And I just wanted to add something that I think is also relevant to this conversation. And so one is that I think people operate under the false impression that standing for the national anthem is something that football players have always done when actually this is only something that's been a sort of regular practice in the NFL since 2009. And so this is like a relatively new phenomenon. Like they did it after 9-11 and then didn't do it for many years. And then in 2009, it became a sort of regular fixture of of sports. So it's not an inevitable facet of the National Football League. But also in 2015, there was a Senate report uh, released by Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake that found that the Department of Defense spent $6.8 million between 2012 and 2015 on what they call paid patriotism. And so this money was spread out among 50 professional teams from the NFL to the NBA to the MLB, NASCAR, MLS, and other professional sports organizations. And in exchange for this money, teams organized displays of national pride, including flag presentations, honoring military members, uh, reenlistment ceremonies, and and a myriad of other sort of military spectacles that were uh, operating under the pretense of you know, creating this interesting symbiosis between uh, professional sports and the military, but was also very purposefully used as an uh, as a recruitment tool for the military through the uh, the use of professional sports leagues. And so, you know, that w- not every single thing that has to do with military was compensated um, for some of these teams, but it is important to note that there is a very direct relationship between money that the Department of the Defense provides to these national uh, professional sporting associations, including the NFL, and the uh, sort of proliferation of military tributes that exist. And, and I think that's just something that we should be cognizant of. While Trump spent many Twitter characters bashing uh, peaceful protesters in the NFL, he went for days without tweeting anything about Puerto Rico and the devastation to the island following Hurricane Maria. When he finally did tweet, he spent more time talking about their broken infrastructure and the money that they owe Wall Street, saying that sadly that needs to be taken care of. Uh, Then he spent talking about the aid that the island would receive um, and uh, 
you know, wishing the island and its inhabitants well. There are 3.4 million people who live in Puerto Rico, and though they are disenfranchised uh, in this country because they only have a non-voting member of Congress and are eliminated from participating in so many of our federal systems, every one of them are Americans. The death toll in Puerto Rico is at least 10 people and across the Caribbean is up to at least 31 people. And I mentioned that last fact because we can't just care about America. There are so many countries that have been devastated from hurricanes and earthquakes in the last two weeks alone and many countries that require our aid and our care. So the status of Puerto Rico and sort of the Supreme Court precedent that allowed for its annexation as a territory and 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 that sort of second-class status um, as a territory but not a state uh, was really founded in this decision, Downs versus Bidwell, in 1901. So this is the same uh, Supreme Court that okayed segregation through Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, and so I'm just going to read a quote from the ruling, which says, if those possessions, possessions meaning uh, territories, are inhabited by alien races differing from U.S. in religion, customs, laws, methods of taxation, and modes of thought, the administration of government and justice according to Anglo-Saxon principles may for a time be impossible. And the question at once arises whether large concessions ought not be made for a time that ultimately our own theories may be carried out and the blessings of a free government under the Constitution extended to them. We decline to hold that there is anything in the Constitution to for- forbid such action. In other words, uh, it was sort of this intention for Puerto Rico and, and Guam and others to be part of this broader sort of colonial project uh, that they would be held in second-class status uh, until the time came that they were sort of able to take up uh, you know, Western ideals and governance. We heard this sort of uh, thought process from, you know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions when he talked about Hawaii being sort of that island in the Pacific uh, as being sort of un-American or not part of uh, what was considered America. And I think that worldview um, may explain why, you know, the U.S. government and this administration in particular has not uh, seen the urgency uh, to support Puerto Rico today. I'm really glad you brought that up, Sam. And what's also been really illuminative is over the last few days, it's it's become clear how few people actually recognize that Puerto Ricans are Americans. And, and so, you know, folks in an effort to say, oh my goodness, look what is happening in Puerto Rico. I can't believe we are allowing this to happen to American citizens. I think I understand very much where that uh, additional sense of urgency comes from. But I also think, and just want to point out that it's telling how many people use the pretense of Puerto Ricans being Americans as the sort of indicator to suggest that this is what should serve as catalyst to our Mm -hmm. moral urgency. And I just, you know, always want us to, to, to sort of push ourselves to like complicate these, these things that were, that otherwise are stemming from like a very benevolent place that like, what are we saying about, aid and what are we saying about uh, our moral responsibility to help other people if the metric that we're using to suggest that people are worthy or not worthy of help or if something is a moral crisis or not is contingent upon the fact that they are Americans. Now, when I think about uh, Puerto Rico, I'm reminded that only about 40% of the island has access to drinking water which is what an official said on Chris Hayes' show the other night. And I also had never thought about 
the importance of cash that on the island, uh, almost all the ATM machines were shut down either because of power, the power outage, or they just haven't been replenished with cash because of the deep flooding. So cash is at an all-time low on the island. And the only bank, or the biggest bank, just opened. And it's like lines wrapped around blocks. So people are having to figure out how to like get access to supplies when they just don't have money. And I hadn't thought about that. So we need to remember that Puerto Rico is a part of the country that deserves aid, that Trump recently tweeted that he is... You know, he's taking cheap shots at Puerto Rico on Twitter, which is so wild. And reports have said that they're not going to vote on a package for Puerto Rico to the first week of October, second week of October, potentially. And they need help now. So uh, given everything that we just said, here are some ways that you can help not only Puerto Rico, but um, all of the Caribbean that has seen an, a bunch of devastation. Um, so you can visit hispanicfederation.org backslash donate or text UNIDOS uh, and an amount that you want to donate to 4144. If you live in New York City, you can visit on.nyc.gov backslash Puerto Rico relief. Um, they'll be collecting donations of everything from diapers and baby food to feminine hygiene products and batteries. Um, if you are looking for someone in Puerto Rico, you can call 202-800-3133. And if you are looking for ways to support recovery efforts across the Caribbean, visit charitynavigator.org. So my piece of news is focused on Austin, Texas, where the city and the police union are currently negotiating uh, a new police union contract. Uh, and so I was down there this past weekend uh, with some local groups there and the Austin Justice Coalition and others uh, really making the case for uh, why this contract, the current contract is so problematic. So to give you a sense, you know, we did a, a project focused on the police union contracts in the 100 largest cities in America and the ways in which those contracts uh, can make it harder to hold officers accountable for misconduct. Uh, and we found that, first of all, that most cities in their contracts have problematic language that does that. But among all of those cities that we looked at, uh, Austin had one of the worst contracts of all. And so, for example, in the Austin contract, uh, there's language that uh, prevents an officer from being disciplined if it takes longer than 180 days for the department to investigate uh, a case of misconduct against them. Uh, there are provisions that automatically reduce records of suspensions against an officer to written reprimands, which makes those records sealed from the public, uh, and then prevents consideration of an officer's record of misconduct uh, when, they're when a police chief is deciding how to discipline that officer. Um, and then finally, there's this provision in the contract that actually prohibits the community oversight structure from having any power to independently investigate complaints, uh, to have subpoena power, and all of that. And so um, these are the types of things that uh, Austin Justice Coalition is pushing the city uh, to reject uh, as a condition to renew that contract. Um, and I just want to bring that here because uh, this is something that is happening not just in Austin, but all across the country. Uh, every four to six years, cities are renegotiating these contracts. And, and in almost all cases, there's language there that just makes it significantly harder to hold officers accountable for misconduct 
Uh, and so we have to be vigilant in, in identifying when those times are that those contracts expire and are being renegotiated uh, and be at the table and demanding change. Otherwise, these provisions get, get signed uh, in a legally binding document for four to six years. Uh, and you're really kind of stuck with uh, this different accountability system for police versus everybody else. I think it's really important that we acknowledge how critical uh, labor unions and labor organizing is in this country. Uh, I was a member of the Washington Teachers Union. I come from a labor family. Um, you know, we all got a day off a few weeks ago uh, because of the strong organizing that folks from labor unions across this country did to make sure um, that people are treated fairly and equitably. Uh, and so that's not what we're talking about, right? This isn't an attack on unions or the ability to collectively bargain. What this is, is a recognition of the fact that supremacy will often pervert the things that we tried to build for our good um, to be things that can harm us. You know, with Austin, I was there too. Sam and I both were there were in meeting with organizers. And the police union contract, like Sam said, is just one of the wildest that we saw when we did this analysis. And the analysis keeps growing. We keep adding more and more police union contracts. You can go to checkthepolice.org to see the police union contract in your city or to see how state law protects police officers in ways that it doesn't protect uh, private citizens. Because we did this analysis so that it can empower you at the local level uh, to enact change like the people and protesters in Austin are doing right now. But in Austin is one of the cities where officers get access to all of the information, like all the evidence, everything, before they even have to make a statement when there is a charge. Like that is wild. Private citizens don't get any of that. But there are so many incredible activists in Austin working on these issues. And, and uh, hopefully they are just one of many cities that will press to make sure that the police don't have a completely different justice system at the structural level. And people don't think about the contracts often because they are sort of weedy. To people, they seem like it's too big for them to understand. But Austin is a great example where the activists have deciphered it and they've translated it so that everybody can understand that this is a real issue. Yeah, I think too often we get caught up in the idea that a critique of a particular labor union is uh, reflective of a critique of unions at large or the the entity of um, labor and collective bargaining. And uh, and I think it's really important to like disaggregate and disentangle. Uh, good union practices from bad union practices, and this idea that uh, for folks that folks on the left should not be able to uh, provide criticism for things that unions uh, don't do well, in addition to uh, talking often about the things that they do do well, is not helpful in making sure that unions continue to do uh, the work that they should be. Right? It's only because we have been critical of unions for decades that they. Uh, amended policies that purposefully uh, kept women out, that purposefully kept uh, black and brown people out, that purposefully kept immigrants out. Um, and so it's a pretty unnuanced take to suggest that any criticism of a union um, is is like not progressive. Uh, and, and I think that we need to recognize that the, the same way that we critique the United States because we are deeply committed to it living up to its aspirations, I think it is important for us to critique unions that are failing to live up to what unions should be doing um, in in a similar vein. Now, the last thing we'll talk about is North Korea. Uh, you know, I realize I didn't know much about North Korea, but Trump has uh, recently been tweeting so much about the leader of North Korea that North Korea has taken his tweets as a declaration of war. I'm hoping that uh, North Korea does not hold his antics against the rest of us who have nothing to do with his tweeting. Um, 
And I hope that you learn during this episode like I learned. I mean, I think it is interesting. North Korea and the United States have technically been at war for, you know, half a century now. And so it's not surprising to me. I mean, if you are at war with a country technically and are flying military aircraft over that country, then, you know, they, you know, the fact that they would say that they would shoot that plane down is not surprising to me. Um, especially given the history of tension between the two nations. But I do think it is uh, a clear example of uh, escalation, right? We talk about this in the context of policing where, um, you know, we are pushing for police to de-escalate instead of escalate situations. Uh, And it's clear that that is also true in the realm of foreign policy where we see this administration consistently choosing a path of escalation instead of de-escalation. And we know that that often ends uh, with a result that is unfavorable for everybody. And so I'm hopeful that somebody, whether it is Kim Jong-un, right, who sadly I have more faith in to de-escalate this than Trump, uh, or whether it's somebody else in the international community uh, will choose a path of de-escalation. Well, and you know, you talk about escalation, but we don't even necessarily know that that is the policy of this administration because this the place where we are right now is based on a tweet, right? North Korean officials believe that this tweet was a declaration of war. And I just want to point out that irrespective of how you feel about any of the other topics that we talk about in relationship to this administration, it should appall and disgust everyone that our the that the leadership of this nation has been reduced to 140 characters and what somebody makes of that. And that can put literally all of us in danger. I'll just say, I don't know what John Kelly is, is doing in that White House, but but somebody like actually needs to take his phone away from him, like for the sake of our country's safety and and the safety of the world that's the news don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming in the decades before the civil war slavery's grip on america tightened but soon a diverse group of abolitionists both black and white began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved hosted by lindsey graham Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Evan Osnos of The New Yorker. Evan, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, DeRay. You're a reporter, and we invited you on the podcast today because you're an expert on North Korea, and I know virtually nothing about North Korea. So we'd love to start out with, like, how long have you been a reporter? Why do you, like, how did you become an expert on North Korea? And then we'll talk about North Korea. Sure. Uh, Yeah, I've been a reporter it's really all I've ever been, actually. Uh, I started doing this straight out of school. I uh, became a reporter when I was 22 years old, working at the Chicago Tribune. And um, actually, my first job was in West Virginia. I worked at a little newspaper in Clarksburg, West Virginia, called the Clarksburg Exponent Telegram. And then worked at the Chicago Tribune for nine years and then was hired by the New Yorker and have been at the New Yorker um, for the last nine years. And, uh, and for a lot of that time I've been based, I was based overseas. And so going to, and I spent a long time living in Asia. So that's sort of how I ended up being interested in North Korea. And when did you first go to North Korea? I went once years ago, um, which was in 2005. And that's partly because I was living in China at that point. I've always been interested in China going back for 20 years. And um, I went to North Korea in 2005 because I wanted to go. And also because I, in that year, I had also been reporting in Iraq and in Iran. And you remember that was when there was what the Bush administration called the axis of evil, which were these three countries that had been held out as America's enemies in some form or another. And I wanted to see... The third one, it was Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. And by this point, 2005, we were at war in Iraq. We were in a very hostile relationship with Iran, and I'd never been to North Korea. And after being in two of them, I I wanted to see the third one. But I have to tell you, Duray, that trip was so uh, limiting. I was there just for a couple days. I had no contact with the government. I was essentially a tourist. I was a journalist, but I was basically there as a tourist. And it just tantalized me, the idea that in order to understand this place, I had to really talk to the government, uh, which is a little different from how it sometimes is when you go to a country as a foreign correspondent where you think to yourself, I need to talk to regular people. Uh, but actually, strangely enough, in North Korea, I could, I could talk to a few regular people. But what I couldn't get was any real understanding of what the government was thinking and saying and doing. What were they, what were they really driving at? And that's, that's what I was desperate to do. And that's what I finally had a chance to do this year in August. Was that because citizens didn't know or they were afraid to talk about it or, or what? But it's because the political system in North Korea is so extraordinarily constricted and confined in the hands of a very rigid, small group of people. You know, there is, as if we know anything about North Korea, of course, it's about the Kim family. Kim Jong-un is the current leader and his father, Kim Jong-il, and before that, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. And it's the only country in the communist world that has had a hereditary dictatorship. 
Um, and it has really much, it's really stayed a family enterprise. In fact, if you look at where other members of the Kim family are, they're all very highly placed in government. They all, you know, they really don't trust outsiders. And so in some countries where I've worked, you can, you can, you know, like I used to live in Egypt, for instance, and in Egypt, you can actually learn a lot about the texture of the place and the feel of it just by just by talking to your talking to the fruit vendor down the block, um, because people are very expressive and they'll talk about their views of the leadership and they'll say I'm frustrated with inflation and I'm angry about this and I'm I'm happy about that. In North Korea, people don't speak that way. There's such intense penalties for criticizing the government that, in a way, if you want to try to get any insight into the direction that the country is going or the direction that the government is going, you have to talk to the government itself. And they don't do that very often. And for that reason, it's kind of, an, it's kind of um, the target that I always wanted uh, to try to, to meet. And before we talk about your latest trip, can you, why, why does North Korea matter in the, in the grand scheme of either international relations or sort of international security or domestic policy? Like, why, why is North Korea, of all the countries in the world, a country that, that we should be talking about and that we should care about? Well, for two big reasons. One is that it's the only country in the world that has conducted a nuclear weapons test in the 21st century. Really? You know, most countries, absolutely. Wow. Most countries had basically decided by the end of the Cold War, with the exception of India and Pakistan, we can talk about that. You know, most countries, the United States, they, most countries were moving in the opposite direction. Um, Barack Obama, after all, began or tried to take steps that would try to reduce the importance of the nuclear arsenal. Uh, he adopted rules that meant that we could refurbish existing infrastructure, but he wasn't interested in developing new weapons. There was this real feeling that after the Cold War, this was a thing of the past. War fighting, remember a few years ago, all we were talking about were terrorist organizations and the right. idea that it was going to be things like ISIS that were going to pose the greatest threat to American security. But North Korea has a very different view. And North Korea's self-perception is that it is very much in a ongoing active war with the United States, and it has been since 1950. And that brings me to the second reason why it matters so much to us in the United States, is that we don't talk very much about North Korea in our daily lives. You know, we go about our business. We get up in the morning, we send our kids off to school, and we go to work. North Korea uh, is focused overwhelmingly not on South Korea, not on China. It focuses and talks about the United States. And you know, we as we obviously fought a war with North Korea from 1950 to 1953, and at the end of that, uh, we signed a peace we signed a ceasefire, but no peace treaty. Hmm. That's a huge fact because what that means is that, as a technical matter, the United States and South Korea uh, on one side and North Korea on the other have been and remained in this state of intense hostility, a kind of chilly. Um, uh, you know, a non non shooting war, but it is by no means peace. And any as soon as you visit the DMZ, the demilitarized zone that separates North Korea from South Korea, you get the feel for what that actually means, which is that North Korea still organizes its own politics, its own foreign policy around the idea that someday the United States might be at war with them again. And so we don't we we don't really have the luxury of not thinking about them. They are they are a big part of our security future and and the security of Asia. 
And um, we're making our way to your most recent trip, but a couple things I just am curious is how would you describe for people that don't know the difference between North Korea and South Korea and why they are so different politically? How would you describe that? Well, it's fascinating how they ended up that way. I mean, at the end of World War II, when Japan was defeated, Japan had been occupying the Korean Peninsula. It controlled Korea essentially as a colony. And once it was defeated, then the Soviet Union and the United States sat down and redrew the map, as they did in other parts of the world. And we know that happened, for instance, in other places in the Middle East, for instance, Um, and obviously in Germany, where you ended up with East Germany and, and West Germany. And in Korea, they did something that turned out to be sort of catastrophic, which was that they divided it at the 38th parallel, right slash across the middle of the Korean Peninsula. And they said, Soviets will control the North and Americans will, in effect, control the South. And each side uh, promoted a leader of its own, a Korean leader. Uh, in In the Americans case, it was somebody who was in favor of capitalism and not really democracy. He was sort of an authoritarian of his own, but he was sort of more in line with the American way of doing things. And most importantly, from the Americans' perspective, he was just going to allow the United States to maintain troops there. Uh, on the northern side, Kim Il-sung was installed by the Soviet Union. And as a result, it became a communist country um, that was um, almost uniquely so uh, Closed to the outside world. Kim Il-sung believed that the only way, and, and the message he had for his people was, the only way that we're going to protect ourselves from being victims once again, the way we were victims during the Japanese occupation, was that we have to close ourselves off from the world. We have to build our country as a fortress. And that means no foreigners. It means no foreign ideas as much as possible. We need to assert the greatness of our Korean heritage. And the end result was actually um, that it became this, you know, what's known today as the hermit kingdom, this very closed off place. But it was also a disaster economically, because that's not really how countries can thrive by cutting themselves off. You, you know, what we now know about economics is that you have to do what you can do best, and then you have to import the stuff that you don't do well, and so on. But they tried to do everything. And as a result, economic mismanagement, there was a terrible famine in the 1990s that killed up to 3 million people. And after that was partly as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Today, just to put it in clearest terms, North Korea is much, much poorer than South Korea, to the point that North Korea makes uh, its GDP is about one fortieth per year of what South Korea is. South Korea is one of the world's most dynamic economies. It's somewhere around the 10th or 11th largest economy in the world. And um, so if you look at the two countries on a map, South Korea is this huge, luminous thing with, you know, if you're looking at it from space, it's, you know, it's lit up. North Korea is quite literally dark. It has almost um, one of the lowest levels of, uh, of electricity generation, and it's just uh, really exists in another decade. You wrote in your piece that you paid $141 a night, which was one month's income for the average citizen. You pay that amount per night at the hotel that you stayed in. That, for one month of an income, is really... Not a lot of money. Yeah, their annual income is roughly comparable to Haiti, uh, oh, wow. or a little bit behind Yemen, to put it in perspective. North Korea is a very poor country. Yeah, it's a very poor country by any measure. Now, last question before we get to the trip is: most people like me know of Dennis Rodman's relationship with 
the current leader of North Korea. Uh, like we've right. seen, we've seen it on TV. What do you make of that? Is that is that a real thing? Is this like a PR ploy? Is that should we care? It's 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 kind of all three of those things. Actually, it's a really odd little bit of history, but it happens to be true, which is that Kim Jong Un, the current leader of North Korea, um, was a tremendous Chicago Bulls fan in the 1990s. He went to school in Switzerland for four years, and while he was there as a teenager, he just fell in love with the Bulls and. Kids who went to school with him say he used to draw pictures of Michael Jordan on his notebooks and, you know, he slept with a basketball and so on. And then years later, the way this whole Rodman thing came about was just purely, really by chance. Um, Vice Media, you know, Vice TV, Vice Magazine, they wanted to try to get into North Korea. And the way they did this was they proposed in 2013 to bring over Michael Jordan. They said to the North Korean government, we're going to bring Michael Jordan. Uh, and, And Michael Jordan said, I'm not going to North Korea. But Dennis Rodman said, sure, I'll go to North Korea. Really? Uh, he wasn't doing all that much at the time. That's Absolutely. the story? <laughs> wow. Because he didn't have any, you know, he was he was essentially living the life of a post-professional. You know, he was doing a lot of autograph work and so on. And they said, we'll pay you to go to North Korea. And he thought it might be kind of interesting. So off he goes. And to his astonishment, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, showed up for the game. They were going to play an exhibition game. It was going to be Dennis Rodman and a few members of the Harlem Globetrotters. And Kim Jong-un shows up and then invites Dennis Rodman after the game to dinner. And then after dinner says, why don't you come and spend a week with me at my seaside villa out on the eastern coast of North Korea? And then he did. And so they they ended up striking up this completely unlikely friendship, which, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves, like, there are literally no other Americans that have met with Kim Jong-un, except for Dennis Rodman and his entourage. So it's a really unusual thing. And, you know, one question people have sometimes about this is like, well, is there any diplomatic value in it? Could it actually yield? Like, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Time? Like, does he have influence? Does he, he get like really, debriefed by I'm the American good. government when he, every time he comes back? Um, not every time, uh, but they have talked to him. And I've also spoken to people on the U.S. government side, and they say they didn't find that it was really very substantive. And I've spoken to guys who were with Rodman when they've been with Kim Jong-un all together. And what they tell me is that Kim Jong-un treats him, it's almost like Kim Jong-un kind of re- sort of regresses a little bit when he's around him. He goes back to being his teenage self and asks him questions about his hair and, and basketball and that kind of stuff. So I will say, though, on their most recent visit to North Korea, which was in April, uh, Dennis Rodman did bring copies of Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, uh, in Korean and in English as a gift to Kim Jong-un. That's, you know, who knows? Maybe that'll persuade him that it's possible to do some negotiations with Trump. That is... I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic on that score, I'm afraid. Now, you you wrote about how there's no diplomatic relationship between North Korea and the United States, but there is some informal relationship. Can you just explain that? And has there never been a diplomatic relationship? Yeah. Never. We've never had a North Korean embassy. Um, you know, the the... Meaning, so when we say we don't have diplomatic relations, it means we don't have an embassy there. They don't have an embassy in our country. We don't have, you know, there's no phone number that we just kind of casually call up and say the way we do with every other country, more or less, with whom we have relations. Um, and we don't even have what we have with Cuba. You know, in Cuba, you remember before we had resumed diplomatic relations 
just in the last couple of years. Before we had that, all we had was what was called an intersection in Havana, which means basically a kind of lower level than an embassy, but it meant that at least there was some way for the U.S. and Cuba to talk to each other officially. But we don't even have that with North Korea. But what we do have is this really funny, almost unique situation where North Korea's mission to the U.N., uh, which is, after all, of course, is in New York City, but it's not an embassy to the United States. It's, a, it's essentially an embassy to the U.N., Inside that office, there are a couple of diplomats whose job is to deal with the U.S. And I'd heard about them over the years, um, but I'd never actually had any dealings with them. And I, when I decided I wanted to try to get into North Korea this year, I, I said, uh, I think that's the only, those are the only people we have to call. Um, and so I, I just cold called them. I mean, it was like, got the number for the mission at the U.N. and called up and asked for the guy. And... Um, this this little this diplomatic channel essentially is known as the New York Channel, and they do this sort of back channel dealings with um, with American officials uh, in a very low key way. Um, they talk to American humanitarian organizations. Like if you're a you know if you're an American NGO and you're trying to get in a non government organization and you're trying to get into North Korea very often you start with these two guys in New York and, and sort of to my surprise. And I thought kind of was sort of fascinating. It turns out it's just literally like two guys, two middle-aged <laughs> dudes <laughs> who are responsible for this incredibly important thing, which is dealing with the United States. Hey, you're listening to pod save the people. Stay tuned. There's more to come. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com enjoy your edible <laughs> legal disclaimer paid for by vote save america votesaveamerica.com not authorized by any candidate or candidates committee everybody should go read the article it's called the risk of nuclear war with north korea uh, but if you've not yet read the article uh, what are some things that you like why was this trip different for you than the last trip the last trip you talked about you didn't get to meet with any officials i know because i read the article that you did get to meet with people because these two guys on this it, from the mission at the UN helped to set up space. And I know that you asked to meet with Kim Jong-un and that didn't seem to happen, but, but how was the trip? 
Well, the trip was fascinating, partly because that they basically said to themselves, we need to start talking to the rest of the world. We have to start explaining our view of things. And it was just, honestly, it was kind of just coincidence that it happened to be when I was requesting a visit. But they don't really let, they don't let in a lot of journalists. They don't like it. They feel like it's dangerous for them. They think a lot of journalists are spies, which is not true. Um, they're, they're very wary of it. Occasionally what they'll do is let in big busloads of reporters for a parade or for a special occasion. And some, and, but in this case, they realized, you know, this is something different. This is like we need to start talking about what is the obvious matter in front of us, which is the risk of a nuclear conflict. I mean, this is not about pageantry or a parade. This is about a really serious national security confrontation. And so they, uh, they basically let me meet these guys in the North Korean government whose job it is, is to analyze the United States. And hmm. that means that they, you know, what they're trying to do is make sense of our intentions as a country. They, they're trying to understand whether we would actually want to go to war with them. They want to understand why it is that the president says the things he says. They're trying to understand Donald Trump. I mean, that's one of the first people I met when I got there was a, um, a young diplomat whose job is to read Trump's Twitter feed and to read all of his speeches and to read all the news coverage of him. And his name is Pak Sung-il. And as he said to me, my job is to try to understand what he means and anticipate what his next move will be. And he said, this is extremely difficult. And I said, well, yeah. It's difficult know, for us too. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're also trying. <laughs> what are the options with regard to North Korea? Like what's the disagreement? Well, the disagreement hinges on the fact that North Korea has been developing these nuclear weapons uh, over the course of the last 24, 25 years. And from the American perspective, this is dangerous. We, we don't want other countries developing weapons. Uh, that's just a, a, as a general matter. But we especially don't want it in the case of North Korea because we remain technically in a state of war. This is, goes back to the fact that we never signed a peace treaty at the end of the Korean War. And that sounds like an esoteric kind of technical thing. It's not. It's just a hugely important fact. If you pick up a North Korean newspaper on any given day, you will see in the newspaper descriptions of the fact that North Korea, as they see themselves, must prepare for a day when the United States reinvades them. Hmm. They, are, they are truly convinced that that is something that we want to do, that that's something that we intend to do. And I, I had this conversation with them a lot where I said, why do you think, why is it in, in your opinion that the United States would seek to re-invade or invade? Because we've never invaded them. Let's be, let's be clear about that. Um, and, and they said, because you don't accept us as a socialist country, you fundamentally reject our values. Basically, they see this as a continuation of the Cold War. The simplest way to think about it is that from North Korea's perspective, the Cold War never ended. The Soviet Union collapsed, but the United States remains in this state of ideological existential conflict with communist countries that, that are not of our, you know, that don't, that don't have governments the way we do. Now, look, I sort of pointed out what is the obvious point from our perspective as Americans, which is 
I don't know a whole lot of Americans that are itching to go to war with North Korea. That's not something that we think about and talk about. It's just not. But remember, they're a country that is living in extraordinary seclusion. They have um, very few uh, alliances around the world. They have no foreign, they have no internet for most people. I mean, this is not a country that exists in any kind of life that's recognizable to us in terms of information. No internet, um, like just not Facebook or like literally no internet. No, literally, literally no internet. They have what's, they have the intranet, which allows people to send email to each other within North Korea and they can get online and see some recipes and, and, um, they can watch state TV, that kind of thing online. But it, it's not in any way connected to the Internet as we know it. So that means that, you know, they don't see the rest of the world. Wait, So, I mean, another thing that can be hard to picture from outside is that foreign movies and television are illegal. If you're caught with them, you're sent off to prison. They just stiffened the penalties for that now in the last two years. But... Uh, that is also changing because a lot of that stuff is being smuggled in. Uh, you can now watch smuggled um, South Korean movies and television. But from the government's perspective, that is a really dangerous thing. They're trying to keep it as the fortress that we talked about. You know, they are trying to maintain this idea that it's us against, that it's, it's us against the world. And that if we don't do it, that the world will seek to undo the Korea that we have created. And that's why, they regard the United States as a threat. I, I think one thing that I should mention, Dre, is it's, it's almost impossible to understand why they feel this sense of a hostile relationship to the United States without a word about how they look at the history of the Korean War. Because the Korean War, which lasted three years, killed a tremendous number of people. It killed four million people, which we don't really talk about very often. But that meant that it was this hugely traumatic event in their history. Why did we? Yeah. Have, why was the Korean War war? Why, why did it happen? Yeah. Well, in 1953, sorry, the Korean War happened because in 1950, Kim Il-sung and the North Korean army invaded South Korea. And their goal was to try to reunify the Korean peninsula. They wanted to put an end to that partition, which had been put into effect at the end of World War II. They believed that communism was the right way for people to live in Korea, and they were nationalists, and they believed that South Koreans were suffering terribly under their system, backed by the United States, and therefore they attacked. Got it. And it was a terrible war. We, you know, we don't talk about it much in the U.S. It's known as the Forgotten War, and that's basically because Vietnam and everything that came after was sort of more immediate for us, um, and it went on longer. Who won the Korean War? The Korean War ended in a stalemate, in effect, because they fought and fought for three years. And finally, Harry Truman said, we're never going to win this war. And... So he offered this division of the peninsula once again. And, you know, the great irony, the sad, tragic irony is that they ended up dividing North Korea and South Korea again at almost exactly the same point that they had been at when they started the war. Wow. But, the, but what really is important about this is that North Korea does not remember the history of the war the same way we do. Their mythology, and we have to really basically just call it that because it's not, it's not true, but it is very, very deeply felt to them. 
they believe, they say, they teach their children that we invaded them. And their view is we invaded them in 1950 because we were seeking to uh, keep them down and we were seeking to make them, you know, subject to our control. And as a result, they have this very strong feeling in their history that because, as they view it, we invaded them once, that we might do it again. And that's just a really dominant fact of their lives. And it's almost impossible to see the world as North Koreans see it without understanding that first big fact about their view of the Korean War. What are the options and and what do you foresee happening in this era of Trump? Well, the options are, um, number one, we can basically learn to live with the North Korean nuclear arsenal the way that we lived with the Soviet nuclear arsenal during the Cold War. We didn't like it. We didn't trust them. But we used deterrence, meaning the idea of mutually assured destruction, that if they fired something at us, we made it pretty clear that that would be the end of them. It would leave, you know, it would lead to their annihilation. We would respond with overwhelming force. So effectively, it worked during the Soviet era. It worked during the Cold War. And there's a view that it could work today with North Korea. That's one option. Another option is that we continue to do what we're doing right now, which is more sanctions, more pressure on them. We try to get China to cut off any trade. China and North Korea are neighbors, and they, uh, 90% of North Korea's trade is with, with one country. It's with China. So that's another option is to just put more and more pressure in the hopes that they eventually say, you know what, this is not worth it. We're going to give up our nuclear weapons. That's option two. And then option three is war. And this would be a preventive war, as it's known, meaning a war of choice. It's one that we undertake ourselves in the belief that if we don't do it now, it's going to be worse later. Uh, Meaning that if we don't undertake, if we don't have a war now and try to basically destroy this regime or remove its ability to attack us, that someday later they will use these nuclear weapons against us or they'll use them to blackmail us uh, by pushing us off the Korean Peninsula. And that, and that it, so, so the argument would be it's either war now or war later. But I should say uh, that the idea of war in Korea has been looked at before, most recently during the Obama administration. And the studies are all very, very clear, which is that it would be a catastrophe. It would cost a tremendous number of lives in South Korea, in Japan, um, and, of course, also in North Korea. Because North Korea has been preparing for war for decades. And as a result, they have a tremendous amount of weaponry and artillery right there on the border with South Korea, just 30 miles away from the capital, which is a city with 10 million people in it. So if they did it, uh, if we went to war with North Korea, let's say we launched a bunch of missiles or uh, used other weapons, dropped bombs from jets, for instance, the risk is that they would immediately retaliate and that they would end up killing a lot of people in South Korea. And as a result, um, every previous president has said this idea is not serious. We, We really can't consider war. It's just too dangerous. But Trump is different. And he talks about war very differently with North Korea. He says openly, we're thinking about it. We're, as he says over and over, all options are on the table. That's one of those euphemisms for signaling to them that we're considering 
attacking them. Um, and over the summer, he said, we will bring fire and fury to, to, to North Korea. He has said, we are locked and loaded. And so he, he is looking at it, talking about it. Um, my own view, and Duray, this is sort of speculative. I mean, nobody, literally nobody knows right now. And if this is one of those issues that if somebody tells you they know for sure what's going to happen, they're lying to you because <laughs> nobody knows. It's just, it's just an unresolved issue. But I'll tell you what I think is probably most likely. I think what's most likely to happen is that we end up coming to coexist with North Korea, that we basically just have to set up a system of deterrence, which is not, it's not easy. And it's not kumbaya, let's just pretend that we suddenly trust them. No, it is like, you're setting up a system in which you are saying, we believe that you are dangerous, we believe that you uh, can't be trusted. um, But we are relying on the fact that you're not suicidal. Right. And if you attack us, that's the end of you as a country. And uh, you know, there is a view that that worked. It worked for decades during the Cold War, and it could work with the North Koreans. What's the relationship with North Korea between North Korea and Russia? They have a relationship. It's never been huge uh, since the end of the Soviet Union, um, but it's it, it is there. They they get some oil. They have a trading relationship with Russia. And most of all, the most important part of their relationship is that Russia has, in the past, sought to protect North Korea against sanctions in the UN. And at the moment, Russia is playing essentially both sides a little bit. They're saying, on the one hand, that North Korea should give up uh, and stop testing its nuclear program. It should not continue developing its nuclear weapons. But actually, they are also trying to go very, very slowly and prevent the United States from from taking any really drastic steps. So North Russia is not the most important player in this, uh, but they are a player that basically is operating to help the North Koreans in their confrontation with the U.S. And what is South Korea doing in all like as this all goes down? What is South Korea just what are they doing? South Korea is in a in a tough spot. Uh, they are obviously right next door, and they have lived with this for decades. They've lived with the risk of war. And that's one of the interesting things about going to South Korea today is you know, I spent part of the summer there, and people are not tearing their hair out and saying, my God, the end of the world is coming. People kind of go about their lives. It's the most remarkable thing about life in Seoul, the capital right now, is that it is remarkably normal. And I think this often surprises Americans who go over there. But as a lot of South Koreans have said to me, it's because, in effect, we sort of know this cycle, this cycle of provocation and escalation and then, uh, and then negotiation. And so they're, they're, they're used to it. Now, I, I tend to think, actually, that they're probably a little bit too used to it, that they may need to be a little bit more concerned than they are right now. But it's also helpful to see that they're not that they're not running around with their hair on fire. Um, they're, they're calm, but they are also in a, in a tough spot. Look, they are not, um, 
the, the South Koreans feel very conflicted about North Korea because in many ways they feel very close to North Korea. You know, there are a lot of families, tens of thousands of Korean families that are divided where some people were on one side of the border and some members of the family were on the other side of the border. So they're literally divided. So they don't look at North Korea simply as an enemy. They look at North Korea more like uh, a sibling that has lost its way. And that means that they're not inclined to support an American effort to attack North Korea. They, they don't want that to be the resolution. They want a peaceful resolution to this issue. Um, their current president, whose name is Moon Jae-in, he came into office earlier this year promising actually exactly the opposite of what we're in now, which is he wanted better relations. He wanted to be friendlier to North Korea. And unfortunately, it hasn't gone that way because North Korea has actually continued to test its nuclear and, and missile program. Um, but there is a very strong desire in, in South Korea to figure out a peaceful future with this, in many ways, kind of eccentric part of the family. Got it. What is, what's next for you? Well, I do both foreign affairs and U.S. politics. And so um, I have a family and I've been away a lot reporting on Asia and North Korea lately. So I, I'm, I'm going to be at home for a while writing about what's going on in Washington. And um, there's more than enough, more than enough in Washington that's going to keep you busy. <laughs> I, I've written a lot about Trump, and I suspect I'll be doing a lot more of that. Now, what would you say to young writers in this moment who are looking for advice about how to cover these super complicated issues or or just looking for advice from, from seasoned people like you? What's your advice to them in moments like this? I think the single biggest advantage that you can give yourself as a writer, as a young person trying to get into this business is learn one thing extremely deeply. Learn the language, for instance. If you, you know, if you know that you have an interest in some part of the world, learn that language and really learn it. You know, invest, essentially sort of give yourself uh, the time to learn it. Maybe it's outside of work. Maybe it's in the morning or in the evening. But you know, the fact that I had that I studied Chinese when I was in college, and then and then continued studying Chinese. That's the only reason why I'm doing the work I'm doing today is because I had this thing that they they can't take that away from you. You know, nobody can take away a skill like that. And if you have that, it doesn't have to be a language. It might be expertise on one subject. You know, if you're interested in housing policy, for instance, become the best expert on housing policy because that's purely up to you. It's purely whether you're willing to dedicate yourself to it. But they can't, nobody can ever argue with that expertise. And that is really the, that's the way, that's the way to get yourself in the door because there will come a moment when they need that. And when they need that, then you're the person they call. And the key thing is be really good at that one thing and then be willing to do just about any other story that they ask you to do. So that's a key fact is don't close yourself off to other stuff just because you're interested in that one thing. Just know that if you're willing to do a lot of other stuff and you're really sort of flexible and dynamic in the beginning, that creates the opportunities for you to then later do that one thing that you really want to write about. Boom. And one question I ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Try to say yes as much as possible at the office. And I know, I know sometimes that sounds, sounds hard because you're like, well, I don't want to say yes to this assignment. It's like, it's about to get in my way. I have like a really great weekend planned. 
But I've just really come to see looking at my, I've been lucky to have this advice early and it's paid off that you sort of want to be available and willing to try a lot of different stuff in your work when you're starting out, when you're sort of, you know, from 20 to 30, then you want to, then, then doing that when you're 30 to 40, by the time you get to that second stage, you want to have already shown that you're so enthusiastic and willing to do stuff that you've already earned the credibility to make some of your own choices. But the only way you get there is by being enthusiastic and willing to learn early on. And, and I see it now at a slightly different phase. Um, you know, I'm 40. And when I work with younger writers and people getting into this business, it's just always better when somebody is sort of up to try out new stuff and to throw themselves into it because that's how the organization works well and that's how they learn and it's, and it's how we operate better as a team. So it, it worked for me when I was starting out and I find that it still works for people now. Got it. Well, Evan, thank you so much for joining. I learned uh, so much. Like this is, you know, this is a great one-on-one on North Korea and uh, we consider your friend of the pod. My pleasure. Thanks, Duray. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And now, the conversation with Phil Weiser, who's running to be the next Attorney General in Colorado. Phil, thanks so much for joining today on Party of the People. It's such a pleasure to be here. So you worked for President Obama as a deputy attorney general for antitrust for a year. And then you were a senior advisor for tech and innovation after that. And I've been a law school professor and a dean, among a host of other things. Can you just help ground me a little bit in your journey in public service? How'd you get here? What have you been doing? Yeah, so I have a deep appreciation for our country. I am the son of an immigrant. My mom was actually born in a concentration camp in 1945. And she and my grandparents came here when she was six years old. That legacy has always hit me hard in terms of what this country stands for, welcoming 
my family, its commitment to freedom, opportunity, and I have felt this just deep calling for public service to give back. And so when I went to college, that was what drove me. That's what got me to law school. And then ever since, it's been a question for me, how can I serve? And that's been what I've done working for judges, including Justice Ginsburg and Justice White in the Supreme Court, working for President Obama, before that, President Clinton. And then my work in the law school world has really been about service as well in terms of what I've pursued as a scholar, as a teacher and mentor, and then engaging in our community. So that's always been what's driven me. And it's never had me in politics before, but it's always been about public service. Now, you're running for the Attorney General of Colorado. What are the biggest issues that Coloradans are facing? We in Colorado, I believe, have issues that everyone in the U.S. has. There is a lot of fear right now about what the Trump administration means for our basic civil rights and freedoms. People here are concerned about their right to vote. They're concerned about religious freedom, about the commitment to due process of law. And so the nervousness about our American system is something that's really bubbled up to the surface. And that's sort of one big one. A second big one is people here, particularly when you get outside the Denver Boulder area, are concerned about opportunities for their future. The urban rural divide in this country is real. If you talk about the opioid epidemic and the extent to which people are really suffering, if you talk about the concerns about job opportunities, that's, I'd say, again, forefront of people's minds. And finally, people here in Colorado, we treasure our land, our air, and our water. We know that this is central to our future. And the fact that we as a country are turning our back on fighting climate change is is a real concern. So I think all those issues are top of mind, and they're all related to what the Attorney General in Colorado can do. What will change if you're elected as Attorney General? So the office will go from right now, basically being on autopilot, engaging in some political stunts. Recently, the office sued Boulder County when Boulder County is working out its oil and gas uh, management program to being an engine for progress. So we're going to prioritize the issues I talked about. How do we make sure we're protecting our freedoms? How do we make sure we're fighting people's opportunity? How do we make sure we're protecting our land, air, and water? We're going to look at every tool we have in the toolkit. So sometimes that's bringing a case. Sometimes that's working with the legislature or regulatory agencies. And sometimes it's working with the private sector developing best practices. And this is something that, you know, everything I've done in my career, working with President Obama, working at CU Law School, I've looked to be creative, to be entrepreneurial. How do we solve problems using different possible tools? And this is what I bring to the Attorney General's office. Now, you used to work on antitrust issues. I know almost nothing about antitrust. Can you explain like, why antitrust issues? What, what is antitrust? Why is it important? Why should people care? So, uh, DeRay, it's great. I have to tell you, as a listener, I love when you ask these questions on topics that I don't understand so I can learn about them. It's a pleasure to teach people about antitrust because we all in our lives are so affected as workers and consumers by decisions made on antitrust law. It used to be the case back in Theodore Roosevelt's day that people thought about antitrust. They understood that the economy and whether or not you had concentrated industries or monopolies hurt their lives. We're seeing a more concentrated economy today than we have in a long, long time. And so we need people to understand and care about antitrust and what it means for our economy. So two big categories I'll mention. One is when you get industries where companies together collude, let's engage in price fixing, that's going to mean consumers pay more. So right now, a number of state attorneys general are bringing a lawsuit against some of the pharmaceutical companies who've colluded 
on the prices of generic drugs. So we've seen prices go from $20 a bottle to 2000 in a few years. That's not a normal thing to happen. So the attorney generals investigated it, think we think there's some collusion that's allowed this to happen. They brought a lawsuit. So that's, that's really important. The free market economy means we need competition. We don't want to see collusion. In fact, you can go to jail if you engage in uh, price fixing. And, and there's some famous cases that uh, you may remember the Archer Daniels uh, Midland case and, and the movie with Matt Damon, the informant that was based on that. Mm. So that's one. A second big one is mergers. If we get too much mergers in industry, it's going to mean that companies can raise prices or just not lower them when their costs go down. So take, for example, airlines, which we saw in 2015, a huge reduction in the price of fuel for airlines. And so in a, in a competitive world, that gets passed on to consumers. But the airline industry didn't cut their prices. They literally just gave more like free peanuts and they made record profits. That says to me that industry has gotten pretty concentrated. We got to keep a close eye on it. And to give you one last example in this merger case, under President Obama, AT&T wanted to buy T-Mobile, which would have reduced the number of wireless carriers from four to three. And industries, when they go from four to three, is, is sort of a, to use a metaphor from Lost in Space fans, Danger Will Robinson. That's, that's a concern. And the DOJ stopped that merger and kept competition going and then kept jobs too, because if that merger had happened, a lot of people who worked for T-Mobile would have been without their jobs. So it, mm-hmm. it's really important to our economy for both consumers, for workers, and also in ensuring that new entrants can be successful in entering a market. So for healthcare, for example, antitrust looks at whether or not we can see more competition in healthcare. So it's incredibly important. And if Washington is not going to maintain strong antitrust enforcement, having state attorneys general who can be strong in this area is going to matter a lot to the economy. You also worked in the wireless initiative at the White House, and on the pod we talked about uh, we talked about access to the internet and how that is a matter of equity in in its own justice issue. Uh, is there anything that we should be paying attention to with regard to wireless that that we that I would know? Yeah, here's one thing I would mention. This resonates a lot in Colorado and a lot of other states. One of the challenges we as Democrats and we as progressives have to do is to not concede rural areas and say we don't focus on them. We have to go to rural areas and we have to talk about how the policies that we're for help them too. So I know when you had Commissioner Clyburn on, she talked about this issue about universal service and how providing access, both wireless broadband and wired broadband in rural areas, is, and also to um, the Lifeline program, which covers low-income individuals, is a core policy that this country is behind and that we Democrats have championed. And so one of the things we need to really focus on is whether or not all parts of this country have access to broadband. If they don't have access, they're not going to be effective members of the 21st century economy. And that means we need to be creative and we need to be vigilant, just like we were in the 20th century about electricity, about whether or not we have broadband everywhere. States can play a very important role in helping to chart their own destiny on this. There's still a lot of experiments happening about how do you get broadband out there. And that's something that, again, if you're not going to have leadership from Washington, you'll need it from the states. And where can people go to learn more about your campaign? So philforcolorado.com is my website. You'll see a lot of information on there, my views on the issues we talked about, how to get involved. This is a special moment, and I have to tell you, I've been a teacher for a long time and a mentor to a lot of students. The number of people who've gotten involved, we're really working on building a grassroots campaign And if people want to get involved in this campaign, we're thrilled to get them involved, to engage them. Even if you don't live in Colorado, if you live in states that 
maybe are deep blue states or deep red states, Colorado is a purple state. This is a state that's going to matter in 2018. If you can adopt us, adopt me, you can help us make a difference and help bring our country back on the right track. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell a friend. I'll see you back here next week. And make sure that you rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Wow.